Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. It's Friday, September 15th, 2023. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host, Nick Chanusa. Nick, we are recording in advance, but how is Bunker and Down in the hurricane going? Give me your prediction. I was just going to say I'm batting down the hatches over here. Um, my prediction is uh, my street floods and I can't go anywhere for a couple of days, which is just fine because I'm getting the non-perishables. I'm getting some chili. I'm getting some canned soup and stuff that I'm going to eat lukewarm. So I'm ready to rumble. <laughs> I guess what lukewarm i'm trying to think of like clam chowder clam chowder would be the worst lukewarm yeah that was what i was trying to figure out by far i'm I'm saying the best would be and i've already talked to this uh talked this over with my girlfriend i think chicken noodle would be i was just thinking that yeah or like a chicken and wild rice yeah exactly like just great tomato bisque absolutely not no that's right anything with a milk in it like any cream um no loaded potato soup, but you could probably go with a... No, I was going to say corn chowder. You can't do that. Man, there's a lot of soups I just don't want to <laughs> eat cold. <laughs> yeah, gazpacho is very overrated. I would keep it keep it to just those two, maybe chicken noodles, chicken and wild rice. All right, well, uh, cold soup, not so good. This cold open, you tell me. Let's get into the show. <laughs> for our quick hits for the week and the first one is by Sammy Magdi of the Associated Press who writes thousands are feared dead and thousands more are missing in flood ravaged eastern Libya yeah so we have two stories to kick off today's show that are pretty tough to discuss um, don't really have a ton to add but we're gonna break it down and you know talk about a little bit of the environmental side but our primary concern here is the the people who are impacted so Emergency workers in Libya uncovered over 1,500 bodies as a result of the flooding earlier this week, and the fear is that over 5,000 people could be dead due to floodwaters washing away entire neighborhoods. Libya's envoy for the International Federation of the Red Cross and the Red Crescent Societies, Tamer Ramadan, said that more than 40,000 people had been displaced because of this flooding. Between Sunday and Monday, 16.3 inches of rain fell in Libya which is what caused dams outside of the city of Derna to collapse on Sunday night. This resulted in flash flooding along the Wadi Derna River and into the city of Derna. The author writes that flooding often happens in Libya during its rainy season, but rarely with this much destruction. Officials are now trying to figure out if the two dams failed because of poor maintenance or just sheer volume of rain. The article also points out how political conflicts can lead to disasters like this one becoming much worse because basic maintenance in Derna had been neglected for years. The city's been controlled since 2019 by Khalifa Hifter, a militant leader supported by Egypt, Russia, Jordan, and the United Arab Emirates. Libya's capital city of Tripoli, on the other hand, is held by the West Libya administration and is backed by Turkey, Qatar, and Italy. And West Libya's government did send a plane of medical supplies and healthcare workers to Benghazi to assist with the rescue and recovery. 
but this is, you know, one of those situations where if proper maintenance was done on these dams, you know, if there was a more stable government in place in Libya that wasn't part of infighting, you know, would they have the mechanisms in place to perform basic maintenance on their infrastructure, including these dams? And if that's the case, does this, you know, does this lead to this much destruction? I don't know because 16.3 inches of rain is still a tremendous amount. And we're not here to say that proper maintenance was the only issue. You know, climate change is definitely playing a major role in how much rain we're seeing across different storms. But, you know, it's not really our place to speculate here. It's more our place to say that climate change is going to make things worse. And when that happens, Mm -hmm. we need to make sure that proper maintenance is ongoing because otherwise you're going to see more of, of these kinds of stories. Yeah. And just, just a quick note, obviously this is a horrendous story and I feel so bad for the people there um, and for all the people that have been displaced um, and passed just for some reference, 16 inches of rain is the equivalent rough equivalent of about 150 inches of snow. So it's a massive amount of rain that mm-hmm. fell in Libya, which caused this. Yeah, and we saw because of that, you know, two dams just completely fell. And I don't know, it's just situations like this are always so difficult because I'm glad that West Libya's government sent supplies over to take care of people who maybe aren't technically under their their rule right now, but yeah. These are these are their people, right? And it's just so tough that they they did this. So this is not the case, but like, what if they didn't, you know, what if this was another regime that said, no, we're not going to help them. You know, their, their people had a chance to join our side of the fight and they didn't, you know, that's where you turn environmental disasters, which are already so difficult into, you know, just a, a human rights violation. And yeah, I'm glad West Libya's government did the right thing, but you know, it's a cautionary tale. For exactly. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to the next one. Yeah. So our next one is also pretty um, grim. It's uh, from NBC News and it's titled Desperation and Grief as Death Toll Grows in Morocco. Recap. A 6.8 magnitude earthquake has killed nearly 3000 people beginning on Friday of last week in Morocco, destroying thousands of homes and structures and injuring 2500 more people. The earthquake's epicenter was in the high Atlas Mountains of Morocco, with moderate shockwaves reaching the coastal cities of Safi and Agadir, and strong shocks felt in Marrakech. One of the main challenges for the rescue team has been the type of construction in the mountains, where mud and earth have been used to build bricks, and this provides less of a chance for air to get in when they collapse. This is already a region that is difficult to find potential survivors as the areas in need are the same areas that are the most difficult to reach. Um, I was reading that you pretty much need to take a helicopter if you want to get to any of these places quickly. And it's pretty tough to find a landing zone sometimes. So, you know, it's, it's for lack of a better word, extremely, extremely unfortunate that this is one of those areas where like they need immediate help and immediate help is not easy to get because of this. So another issue is that Morocco's government is a monarchy, with a prime minister appointed by the king. Intisar Fakir of the Middle East Institute think tank said, no one wants to deal with the aftermath of showing up and saying, I'll take control of this situation. This can cause a bottleneck as the country waits for King Mohammed VI to make decisions. In this case, the king allowed few countries to send support. 
Spain was one of them. But many countries never received the green light to send support. The region has largely been relying on neighbors to help each other and volunteers to bring supplies to the survivors. Yeah, so another another one where we don't have a ton to add. You know, it's it's an environmental disaster that is leading to far more deaths than I wish we were talking about to, to kick off our Friday. Um, and I thought that the last piece about the monarchy was super interesting, but, you know, like... One of the, I, I just wish that we were talking about it under different circumstances, but it's one of those cases where you have one person who's making all the decisions and even the prime minister is appointed by the king. So, you know, the king's not going to appoint somebody who's going to make him look bad or go against his declaration. Right. So it's really a, a one man show over in Morocco and in this case, not allowing other countries to come in and support, it's it's really made the recovery not impossible, but much, much more difficult than it needs to be. Yeah. You know, they, they aren't willing to accept the support. I, I shouldn't even say they. It's, it's one person. King Mohammed is not willing to accept the support that some of his people desperately need right now. And because of that, like you said, there's volunteers who are coming in and, and helping out. There's neighbors who are basically spearheading the movement to protect each other, which is amazing. And those people are, you know, heroes for, I don't want to say risking their own safety because at this point, like they are survivors and they, they made it out, but you know, they can't focus on their own recovery yet because they're focused on helping make sure their neighbors are surviving. And yeah, that's amazing, but they shouldn't have to do that. Yeah, it should be on, like you said, should be on the the shoulders of the king to go in, take control, get countries that can support you to go and help your people. I, I don't understand, like, refusing help from people when you have an, a 6.8 earthquake that hits your country. That doesn't make any sense to me. But Yeah, especially near Marrakesh, which is one of, like, the major cities in Morocco. Yeah. So, you know, it's not like we're talking about some remote region with very few people, like, Right. This isn't like Siberia. Like, yeah. And, and like, and, and here's the thing, even if it was right, like you go and you help those people. And, and the fact that help is being refused, I don't, I don't really get it. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on geopolitical makeups of, of Morocco right now. But I think when countries are offering you help and you need it, it's it's not a bad thing to accept support. So good on Spain for helping. I know the UK was another country that was able to fly in and help out. I know Morocco is right across the sea from Spain. So it's it's in Africa, but it is very close to Spain. It's close to the UK. So I'm glad that they were able to come in and help out. But I don't know, just, just hope that the recovery turns out to be more successful than it looks like a week after, a week after the actual earthquake. Yeah, absolutely agreed. All right, let's move on to this week's environmental policy roundup. We have a few stories that hopefully will will lighten the mood a little bit and get you at least a little bit excited um, for this Friday. President Biden has canceled seven oil drilling leases that were sold in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge by then-President Trump. President Biden acknowledged the Arctic is warming twice as fast as the rest of the world and said, we have a responsibility to protect this region for future generations. Fossil fuel industry said that this will raise energy prices and harm the local economy. On the border of Nevada and Oregon, an estimated 20 to 40 million tons of lithium lie within a volcanic crater. 
This is thought to be the largest lithium deposit in the world and could create a massive supply of lithium for the U.S. as it continues to transition to renewable energy and electric vehicles. The extraction process will be a bit different than a traditional lithium mining and would require the clay in the caldera to be removed and the lithium to be extracted in a very low energy intensive way. Supreme Court ruled 5-4 to four on August 28th on a new definition of waters of the United States under the Clean Water Act, with the new definition protecting only wetlands with a continuous surface connection to bodies that are waters of the United States. This leaves roughly 63% of wetlands in the United States unprotected, which is a massive rollback of protections by the Supreme Court and would now require Congress to pass protections legislatively to implement these protections again. Um, On that last article, I want to give a quick shout out to the author, Tom Klein, who I worked with at the Bronx Zoo several years ago. Um, Really good article and really great dude. So go check that out. It's in your show notes, along with their other two stories, if you want to read those for more detail. Yeah, for sure. Go check those out. And I just want to bring up really quick about the lithium deposit. It is um, being contested. The development of the mine site is being contested by Native Americans. So it's not for sure going to happen, but um, basically kind of up in the air right now. Yeah. And I guess, you know, this is probably a cop out answer by me, but I hope that it can happen in a way that doesn't infringe on indigenous rights and indigenous lands. I think that, you know, we as Americans have taken far more from Native Americans than we like to acknowledge or we could probably even imagine. So I'm glad to hear about this deposit. I think that could do a lot of good things for the renewable transition, the electric vehicle transition. But, you know, really good point by you. If it's contested by Native Americans, then I, I am hopeful that this is not something where we just kind of brute force our way through doing something that's going to marginalize an already extremely marginalized group. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's my point as well. So, All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we got two more quick hits for you. Stay tuned. Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, olive oil is in trouble as extreme heat and drought push the industry into crisis by CNN's Laura Patterson. Uh, If you know my mom or if you know Nick's mom and if they are listening, I am curious if they heard that headline and just started sweating. Like summer's over, but why am I so nervous right now? I'm I'm nervous. I'm sweating over here. Yeah, it's a huge olive oil family's grown up. 30% Um, reduction. Are you kidding me? 
Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into that. So Europe's heat wave this summer and wildfires across the continent have caused hardships for olive trees and for olive farmers who predict higher prices and potential olive shortages in the near future. When those trees get too hot, they can either conserve water by dropping their fruit or they can continue to produce olives and putting the long term health of the tree at risk because there's only so much water to go around between the tree itself and the fruit. And frankly, there's not enough water for both of those things right now. So last year in Spain, which is the world's biggest olive oil producer, production dropped to around 50% of its five-year average production. This summer's damage won't be known until after harvest time in October and November, but it could drop by more than 30% compared to the five-year average, according to Kyle Highland of the market research group Mintech. Italian fruit crops have also been hit hard by the warming climate and its associated extreme weather events. Along with olives, peaches, nectarines, apricots, and tomatoes have all decreased in production. Yeah, tomato production actually decreased so much that in India, some McDonald's and Burger King restaurants stopped serving tomatoes as prices increased by 400% last month due to those decreased crop yields. So to me, this whole story just screams one thing. It's climate change is happening right now. And it's another one of those stories where like, Yes, the story itself is incredibly serious and it's it's important to discuss. But the main thing that sticks out to me is like, how much more proof do people need that climate change is happening before they stop doing the whole like, oh, it's my grandkids problem. Like, it's not. Mm-hmm. It's here. And, you know, like if you're under the age of 65 and plan on living another 10 years, like you, you should care about climate change. Even even if you're not, you should still care about climate change because if you're leaving the kids on the earth, you want them to just suffer the whole life. Like, I don't get it. I never will understand that. But anyway, um, about the olive oil, this is horrible. Um, not great. Yeah. It's the cornerstone in a lot of foods. Uh, it is an absolute key in the Mediterranean diet. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, not great. And it's it's not like this is happening in a vacuum. It's not just olive oil. Like I said, peaches, nectarines, apricots, tomatoes, all these different foods are going to be produced much less. And you'll see it happen at the grocery store. Your prices go up through the roof, even if it's just one country that has these specific effects. You'll see it go up. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you think of how like interconnected the entire global food chain is and not to get too like philosophical here, but think about the fruits that you grow in your garden in your backyard if you're lucky enough to have a, a garden in your backyard or the vegetables that you grow. Like those vegetables that you are harvesting in September, for example, you can buy those year round from somewhere. You can go to the grocery store and like you don't feel that those aren't in season. Right. And sure, maybe like the quality is not as great because it's traveled or, or whatever, but like everywhere in the world is so reliant on each other for food that if it's one country, like Nick mentioned, like we are going to feel it, you know, it's, it's not just going to be an isolated thing where India is feeling their McDonald's and Burger King restaurants, not selling tomatoes. And everyone else is like, Oh, weird. Fine over here. Yeah. It's not how it works. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing I wanted to bring up is just, you mentioned how olive oil is a staple. Like think about how many foods are reliant on olives or olive oil. And you know, you think of your appetizers, you have some people just love to dip bread in olive oil. I am one of yeah. them. You know, you, you get a drink, you might get a martini, which has olives in it. You know, you're cooking rice. A lot of times you want to toast it real quick with olive oil before you boil the rice down with water. Like there are so many things that 
olive oil is used for that it's it's more than just thinking about oh i won't be able to use olive oil for cooking like it's olive oil it's olives and it's all the other fruits that nick mentioned too like it's there are so many different things in the global food supply that are being impacted by climate change where yes this is a story about olive oil this is a story about olive oil prices potentially going up very soon this is a warning to say if you're grocery shopping this weekend, maybe maybe get a little bit extra olive oil before those prices come up. But this is a greater story about all of the different foods that we consume. Yeah, absolutely. All right, our last quick hit of the week is from The Guardian, where Darna Noor writes, New York University will divest from fossil fuels in win for student activists. This is a bit of a new story and a bit of a call to action. So let's do the news summary first. NYU's total endowment is over $5 billion, so the fact that this money will no longer be contributing to the fossil fuel economy is not only a win for students at NYU, but the state, the country, and ultimately the world. NYU's chair of the Board of Trustees, William R. Berkeley, said, quote, New York University commits to avoid any direct investments in any company whose primary business is the exploration or extraction of fossil fuels, including all forms of coal, oil, and natural gas, and not to renew or seek out any dedicated private funds whose primary aim is to invest in the exploration or extraction of fossil fuels. This goes along with NYU pledging to be net zero by 2040 and aiming to reduce food-related emissions on campus. The article says that as of 2014, NYU had 139 million invested in fossil fuels. Students had been pushing the board to make this divestment since 2004, and some 20 years later, it worked. Yeah, and I'm hoping that other schools are able to do this more easily now. I was reading in the article that 250 schools have already divested from fossil fuels, but Here's the call to action that I alluded to earlier. If you're a current college student, if you are a recent college graduate, if you are a university donor, if you are a professor listening to this, or just anyone listening that has some connection to a school, write a letter to their board. Because the more letters of support in divesting from fossil fuels, the better. You know, a lot of these public universities are some of the largest institutions in the state private universities too, with just incredible money that is getting invested. And, you know, in talking about that investment, Nick, I'm sure you could probably explain this better than me because you, you did finance in school. Uh, oh, I doubt universities that. <laughs> have, yeah, I don't know. This was, this was me doing a quick Google search. So <laughs> universities have a fiduciary commitment to maximizing the investments of their endowments, which means that they basically are obligated to make a lot of money and make as yeah. much money as possible. And fossil fuels might have a decent short-term payoff. You might make that money back soon. But those investments are funding the same industry that is slowly killing us and killing the planet. So the better long-term investment, in my opinion, this is not financial advice, is (laughs) the one that keeps our planet livable for humans in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And when you have an unbelievable amount of money like NYU, it's important where that money is going. And it's even more important at the, you know, investment bank banker stage or, you know, the investment, all the, all the private investment and all that stuff. Yeah. But we'll get to that eventually, you know, hopefully it's about it being efficient, about it being new, exciting and like cutting edge technology, all that stuff. That's like, I feel like when we're really going to see everyone just turn over and, and 
we're not going to have to force them to not use fossil fuels anymore or, or invest in fossil fuels. They're just going to do it because it's the it's the best option. Yeah, and I mean we're getting there. We are we're seeing fossil fuel prices pretty much stagnating, and we're seeing renewable energy prices getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So the market's trending that way. It's yeah. just a matter of getting in at the right time. So I'm hoping that, you know, like I said earlier, I'm hoping this major, major shift from a $5 billion endowment holding school helps other schools say, you know, if NYU did it, we can definitely do it. I agree. And uh, I was just going to say quick about the whole fiduciary thing. Like they always say when you win the lottery, you got to get a fiduciary because they're legally obligated to have your best interest in mind and make you basically as much money as they possibly can. So little tip, little ending tip of the day. Happy Friday, everyone. Yeah, if you listen and you win the lottery, don't do a, lo- a lump sum. Apparently you're supposed to do the the payouts, I think, right? Or is it the other way around? No, I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah. And for that, I will take a 1% finder's fee for uh, helping <laughs> you out there. <laughs> Headhunter Matt Norton is on the job. <laughs> All right, that's going to do it for today's episode of TPT. Nick and I have a busy week next week, so we are just going to air the interview. I was hoping to air on Monday, on Friday, so no quick hits next week. We'll be back two weeks from now with another quick hits episode, but you will be getting an episode a week from today. It's an interview with Rod Matthews. Super cool interview that I really enjoyed uh, getting to speak with Rod about, so Hope you like it. But until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can and follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Nick Chaduce produces our show and makes all the music you hear throughout. Nick, where can people bump your tunes as you bunker down and eat some chili? <laughs> you can bump them at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Let's get some chili, folks. <laughs> and let's get some chilies. Our logo is made by Kaylee Veets. <laughs> Have a great weekend, everyone, and we'll see you right here next Friday. Southwestern Egg Rolls. Peace. <laughs>